Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm joined here by my co-host, the lovely one and only Nick Hill. Lovely. Well, I don't get that often. My mom and my grandma maybe, but... It's a great adjective. Great adjective, I say. You, <laughs> you know, you're talking to a realtor when they start describing you as as lovely or well-maintained, sun-drenched, gleaming hardwood, etc. <laughs> it's got character. There's, I mean, realtors get real creative with words these days and I love it. I also want to point out that this episode is number 007. This is 007, baby. James Bond style on this episode. I love it. Also, seventh episode, things are going really well. We hit over 10K downloads this morning, which is super exciting for us and and fantastic. Thanks again to everybody. So we decided we put together a pretty cool episode today, our first of its kind, a list episode. And Dan, where did we get the great idea for this list style episode? Well, naturally, like most things, we stole it from the Canadian Investor <laughs> Podcast our pod fathers, as we're calling them now, the gentlemen who are kind enough to invite us on to create this spin-off show of you know their great work, which is top of the line investment analysis for the Canadian market, I would say. They invited us on to do this show and we've been really grateful for the reception. But basically, they came up with this, I think it was a couple episodes ago, the 25-point stock checklist, right? So they go through 25 different points to inspect a potential equity acquisition, right? And see whether or not it's a good deal and how they determine, you know, sort of quick. Some of them are really in detail. Some of them are pretty quick. But if you go through these points, does the deal make sense? And so we borrowed the idea and applied it directly to real estate. And actually, I came up with this list, but originally when I tried to do it, I was honestly just going to make it a five point inspection. And it was really, really broad. And then we kind of broke those five different categories into five subcategories for each of them. And so the categories are location, lot, building, income, and individual. So why don't we just take it right from the top, Nick? Yeah. I mean, location, location, location. We've all heard it before. That is the oldest saying in real estate. And does it count as three or we just count it as one? Yeah, I think we just get one here. (laughs) But yeah, no, this list is great. It's kind of a bird's eye view of everything, just 25 little reminder points to look at and to consider and again, you know, if you've bought a property, you've probably been through a lot of these points. If you're looking at and in the phase of analyzing properties and you haven't bought one, this is a fantastic exercise to go through and try to answer some of these questions, try to get some of the stuff on your radar. Because I'll tell you, when I first started, some of these weren't on my radar and I learned the hard way and we'll get through them. So this is a great bird's eye view as to a whole bunch of things that you should look for and look at anytime you're looking at buying a property. Beauty. I love it. The first one, employment. So again, going back to under the location, location, location umbrella, employment is number one for me. I always want to see what the major employers are in the area and where my probably duplex is located close to them. Now, the people don't have to work there, but I know that those areas are going to be more supportive. Like, am I close to a bus route? Am I close to public transit of any kind? So for me, I always like to know who are the major employees in the area and then the employment kind of demographics. And that's a great segue into the next point, which is demographics. 
Yeah, absolutely. And the only piece that I would add to that is if you align with the Bank of Canada's statements lately, when they're talking about whether or not people are, there's a high likelihood that we'll see systemic risk of defaults in the mortgage space. Tiff Macklem keeps saying the biggest risk of people defaulting on their mortgage is if they don't have jobs, right? And so I think as a landlord, it's worth analyzing the tenant's ability to service the rent in a similar way, right? If people lose their jobs, is it a market in which it's easy for them to go find another job? And are you located within close proximity to that employment as well, right? And then that blends itself into the demographics because you might be in a market where, you know, you've got three different tenant pools that you're pulling from potentially. And this is, you know, again, when you talk about that diversification that you hear about in investing, you can apply that diversification to prospective tenants, right? So like when I see people talking about who they're going to be selling a house to, as an example, you want to appeal to as many different markets as you could. So you can get all of this information on websites such as AirDNA, Realtor.ca, Stats Canada, CMHC has some good reports. MPAC and a geo warehouse for the realtors have a lot of good demographic data. But basically, this is like who you would potentially be renting your unit to. You get a lot of markets, Nick, maybe we can use the example of Cornwall where you have some holdings where you know employment is good, we know because they have that the Walmart distribution center there and, and a lot of distribution business is moving into those markets. But on the demographic side, you're also seeing a lot of seniors who are moving out of Montreal, Ottawa, etc. And they want to live in Cornwall because of close proximity to the border or rich natural heritage or whatever it is. So getting understanding for what those demographics are and whether or not they support the type of tenant that you want to be renting to and the type of person that you would be a good landlord to. Great points, Dan. Next one we've got here is the future growth potential. So Again, really simple, high-level stuff. Is the area growing? And this can be found by doing some pretty simple searches, right? Are there proposed residential or commercial developments? A lot of that can be found online. A lot of it's public information. Is there a new school being built? A great example, Dan, you're very familiar with Keswick. When the highway got extended up there, what happened to the real estate prices? What happened to the general demographics and the future growth potential of that entire area, right? If you look at the, you know, sort of use Toronto as an example again, but if you look at the LRT, for instance, that has created massive new pockets along Eglinton, all the way from Scarborough, all the way to the far west end of Toronto and Etobicoke. So always be looking at the future growth potential. Yeah. And I think that leads us to the next point, which is getting an understanding for the local microeconomy, but also If you think about that future growth potential, and this might be the easiest way to blend these couple of concepts together here. So future growth potential, let's look at the list of the five fastest growing municipalities in Canada. Okay, East Gwillimbury, Ontario, which we know basically doubled almost in size because they had so many new homes being developed, right? The Blue Mountains, Ontario, we know that one was likely a bit of a COVID thing happening. A lot of people moving up to Collingwood and the Blue Mountains. Langford, British Columbia, St. Apollinaire, Quebec, and then Niverville, Manitoba. So getting an understanding for why are these areas growing? What is it about that local economy that is pushing people there? Why are the populations accelerating the way that they are? And even at a more granular level, you know, what's the neighborhood like? Is there a good walk score? Do the tenants have the ability to walk to most of their amenities, especially if you're catering to seniors who want to live a more upward or active lifestyle? Do people in the neighborhood have the disposable income in a lot of cases to support the rents that you're trying to command? And is the neighborhood itself a good fit for the type of tenant that you're hoping to attract as a landlord? And that could be anything. Like I know myself and and a number of different landlords that I work with cater to lower income tenants. They're really looking to provide affordable housing for those groups of people. And in a lot of cases, you know, it's easier to do that in areas where those type of amenities are nearby, you know, discount grocery stores, et cetera. And so you really want to get an understanding for what that looks like. And in that respect, 
I guess the last piece of this sort of location element is how does it compare against the rest of the housing stock? So do you want to cover that one a little bit? Yeah. And I mean, a simple way to put that is comps, comparables, right? I mean, that's real estate 101. This house sold for this. What does this one go for? Let's look at the historical data. Again, guys, we all know that stuff's available online, really easy to find. But I don't just mean comps in the sense of, you know, let's look on the same street or a couple blocks away or even in the same town as a comparable. I think I want you guys to take in looking at comparables as capital. Where can I deploy this amount of capital for the best return? Right. So if you've got, let's say, $500,000 to deploy and you're looking across the country, the country should be comps as well. So that all goes down to location, 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 right? We want to look at a micro level. What are things selling for in the neighborhood? What are things selling for in the neighboring town? What are things selling for in the province? What are things selling for across the country and where can I get the best return? So think of a location as a much larger thing than just the cul-de-sac. And that's, I think, a good segue into the next, I guess, subheading here, which is the actual property spec. So take it away, Dan. Yeah. So, you know, I have this under the heading lot, but you want to get an understanding for the piece of land that you're buying because the reality is in most situations, that's really where the long term intrinsic value is established, right? So, now the simplest way to look at that is how big is the lot? What's the size of it and what are the dimensions of it? Is it an irregular shape? It is, is it some weird triangle or pie shape or corner or is it obstructing maybe the visibility from major roadways? Are there problems that, that it might cause down the road, right? And similarly, you know, is the house crammed onto it? What does the lot coverage ratio look like? Is there room for expansion, et cetera, right? So I really want you to look at the piece of land and see, especially as we're starting to get more and more on-site density proposals getting pushed through in municipal planning and provincial planning, talking about the potential to duplex existing houses, but also add garden suites or laneway houses, thinking about whether or not your lot could even accommodate those things. What's next, Nick? Yeah. I mean, before we move on, I just that's one of my favorite ones. Anytime I see a larger lot, I get excited because I think that as things progress over the next several years and over the next several decades, land within densified areas is only going to go up. So you're right. I mean, whether it's a garage that you rent out and make money or it's a garage that just increases the value when you eventually sell the investment, the more land, the better. The next one is a bit of an obscure one. And we threw some obscure ones in here because we wanted the people out there that are looking to do this for maybe the first or second or third time to be aware of the random things that can happen. So one of the random little things that can stop a deal or make it harder to complete is conservation. So, And this could be something that I'm familiar with, like the Oak Ridges Moraine and the Green Belt that we all know in Toronto and, and the GTA that has actually stopped tons of development from happening. So conservation of restriction or easement that's either voluntary yet usually legal agreement between a landowner and a land trust or a government agency that places permanent limitations on land use to protect its significance. So just something to always be aware there. And this will come up again later on and when we talk a little bit about topography and, and heritage designations. But again, just a kind of a random little one to be aware of when you're looking at the property. Yeah, for sure. And I think that it's important to really think about in the context of creating value, right? Being an ad value investor, because I think that that's really where the major delta is. That's a real delta. It's not, or sorry, your alpha. It's not a real earning based on just the appreciation of the market. It's you being able to add value as an investor to the property. So the easiest way to think about this, and I'll use it in the context of the point that I'm supposed to be talking about right now, which is zoning and planning, right? So 
This is a big one because, you know, if you're an investor and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to buy for cash flow, but eventually I want the property to be worth a lot more. Like the way that I purchase investments today is I built a portfolio and I want them to cash flow for the time being, but I want to be able to develop them down the road when I've, you know, sort of finished my career. I don't need that more passive income source and I want to become an active value creator in that real estate. So is there potential upside for the zoning or planning to be increased? Can you increase the density? Could you build a laneway suite? Could you duplex the house? Could you triplex the house? Is there maybe potential for you to go get a minor variance to increase the density to you know a fourplex infill kind of project? And again, these are things that are worth thinking about as the government has to start acknowledging more and more the housing crisis that we're in and think of creative ways to solve them. You want a piece of real estate that is accessible and attractive for an on-site solution to this housing crisis. The final piece on that is sort of if you're putting together a couple of pieces of land, if you can get maybe three, four sites on, you know, like the average 50 by 150 lot, I guess that's a quarter of an acre. So if you get four of those, you get a one acre site. Typically, most developers can do quite a bit with a one acre piece of land, right? So maybe you and your four buddies go and buy four of these one acre sites on a main road in Keswick, Ontario, or I guess what was some of them? Moncton, Lang- New Brunswick. Yeah, or <laughs> Langford, BC, or, or Niverville, Manitoba, or one of these other fast growing areas, right? And just to tie that back into the conservation element, when you go to a municipality to go get building permits or zoning and planning documents, if your property is located near a main body of water, typically anything located around that body of water where the groundwater would flow into that lake would be regulated by a conservation authority. So Lake Simcoe, as an example, there's if you draw a Lake Simcoe-shaped line all the way around Lake Simcoe, that's all regulated by the Lake Simcoe Conservation Authority. In Toronto, there's the Toronto Regional Conservation Authority. These are small governing bodies that exist all over the country that basically if you go to approach a municipality about something, they're going to say, yeah, we're happy to let you do what you want to do here, but you also need to get the permission of the conservation authority. So the only other thing, I guess, and I'll hand it off to you here, Nick, but if you want to talk a little bit about that one specific deal that we had in Uxbridge, and then also maybe use that to get to the next point, which is sort of the road frontage and especially when we're talking about that with yeah, yeah. For sure. So so this deal holds a special place in my heart because it was the first one Dan and I ever worked on together. And man, we got close a couple of times to closing that. Really close. It was a, it was an awesome deal. It was a, an old century home, kind of a bit of a chopped up fourplex, but tons of potential. Had another big steel garage on the side, but it was three quarters of an acre right in the town of Uxbridge and it was zoned C3. So to be honest, the deal itself without the zoning was an okay deal. But really, I think the thing that drew Dan and I to it and that made us spend about a year of our time flirting back and forth with the owner and him leading us on, we actually made multiple million dollar plus offers on this place only to lose out. I won't go into too much of the detail, but the main pull factor for us was the zoning, right? We had multiple investor money partners look at it and the zoning was the main thing. It was C3, which essentially means you could put anything from a doctor's office to a library, to a cafe, a restaurant, a hotel, a motel, a holiday inn, an exotic dancing facility. You could literally put anything in this place. So it was also right next to the current go stop station. So the zoning on some deals can be so good that that can be the main pull factor. And that's just always something to look for. And that is a great segue into the the next little point, which is frontage, roads, and traffic. In some cases, this can be a really bad thing, right? You don't want to buy a duplex or a single family home on the corner of two main roads when you know, and you're trying to rent it out to a family. It's too noisy. It's too dangerous, too much noise pollution, whatever it may be. In other aspects, 
that can be a perfect thing if you're trying to do what Dan and I were trying to do with this deal and you want exposure, you want people driving by, you want foot traffic. So again, just another thing to look at. But what we're getting at here is all of these things you need to be thinking years into the future, right? This isn't the, I'm going to buy this and turn it into a condo tomorrow. I'm going to buy this and flip it to this. These are all things that you have to buy and be looking at for a few years down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And just to to summarize those points a little bit there on, on that deal, I think it's also worth really getting an understanding for, you know, once you've established based on the location heading that we went through, the market that you want to be in, really get to know what all of the different traffic counts are on all of those major arterial roads. Because maybe you don't want to be on the main highway, but maybe you want to be on the second arterial road because that's where the municipality is trying to encourage future walkability as an example or create a historic downtown. And adding to that, getting an understanding for the granularity of the zoning and planning is, you know, that site that you're talking about in Uxbridge, you could have ground floor commercial and you could have several residential suites above, right? So getting an understanding for maybe some of these little nuances that are available within the existing zoning that maybe aren't being exploited, right? So as an example, you buy a property, like I almost did a deal like this in Jackson's Point. We ended up losing it and the building got flattened. Actually, I think we lost it over like five grand or 10 grand. It was like heartbreaking, but (laughs) the place was zoned to have six units within it. And it was literally being used as just commercial property. And it was allowed to have six residential suites as well as commercial. So within those little details, there's a ton of value to be extracted, especially knowing that, you know, the investors were paying 250 a door, 250K a door in that market at that time. So yeah. And before we jump on to the next one, Dan, I just want to point out something very, very important here. For those of you listening that are trying to do your first deal or your first couple deals and money is the issue and you're trying to go out and find financial partners, don't worry. I've been there. We all have. I will tell you right now, the best way to find a financial partner is to know all of this stuff inside and out. If you can take a deal to an investor and tell them about the topography, tell them about the zoning, tell them about the future plans, tell them that there's going to be an LRT or a new bus stop or whatever built, give them the demographics, go through this list. And this should probably be saved for the end, but I just thought of it right now. So go through this whole list and know this stuff inside and out. And I guarantee you, your chances will go through the roof of being able to fund a deal if you can tell the investor how many cars go past it, how many parking spots are allowed there, what the three to five year plan for the municipality looks like. So anyways, that being said, sorry, Dan, I'll take it away. No, absolutely. I think it's a good point, right? Like, I mean, this is a list that I've used historically to know the property better than anybody else in the world. It's actually not impossible to do that, right? Like you could, and you should, and if you're, even if you're a realtor, if you're an investor, like if you're an investor, you want to know the property, you want to approach it and be wowing the listing agent with your knowledge of that property, of that area, of the potential value. Because if you possess all of the knowledge, you're in control of the situation, right? The best way to do a good deal in real estate is to make it a good deal, right? And the easiest way to do that is to be more informed than anybody else, right? Knowledge is power. Let's pivot here to topography and natural heritage. So, I mean, these ones are pretty simple, but you want to get an understanding for even just the grading of the lot, right? So, this kind of an extension of that conservation, but is the lot on a hill and is the hill going to drain a lot of water into the basement, right? Nick, like when we were touring that up-down duplex one time and I noticed it was musty on the inside and I looked out the back window of the basement apartment, I think that was out in Cambridge, right? And I said, this hill is draining that water right around the foundation. It might not be in here yet, but eventually it's going to come in, right? And so, mm-hmm. it's not so much that you have to worry about that or like that it's an absolute deal breaker, but it's something to be aware of in the future 
as an investor, you want to make sure that you know what the property is doing. And similarly, I think, you know, like trees, especially in the city of Toronto, you know, they have the urban forestry program and you'll see a lot of tree canopy being protected. So like I have an example of somebody who built a laneway house, Brandon Donnelly. He's a huge developer in in the city of Toronto. He has a, a little company called Globizen. So he does some cool develop, like one-off developments. And then he also works for uh, Slate. And he was doing a laneway home. It's well-documented. I actually did a, a YouTube video on it. And, and they actually had to float this laneway house on helical piles. They had to put screw piles in that they had like scopes dodging the roots of the tree on the way down to sit the house on top of that to protect wow. this tree. Yeah. So I mean, that obviously found that foundation solution was not nearly as cheap as ripping a big hole in the ground and pouring concrete, right? So again, it's not so much that these things are going to be deal breakers or completely preventative, but they are going to make the structure of your asset change, right? And that's a very, very simple segue to the next thing we're going to talk about, Nick. Which is structural issues. However, I'm going to not take that great layup segue and I'm just going to backtrack for a second. I just, I've got a quick story about topography that I think is relevant because when I was uh, in the process of, I think it was the second duplex I was trying to buy, I was looking in Peterborough, Ontario. Peterborough's got a river that runs through it. Beautiful, beautiful river actually used to power most of the town. But this hoarder house I was looking at, we ended up making an offer. I think we were one of 30 offers at the time. And I was told by my insurance company and by my realtor, shout out to Mitch Cleary from from Peterborough at Century 21 team, that it was actually in the floodplain. And if I wasn't able to get home insurance, I would not be able to get a mortgage. So I never expected this home to be on a floodplain in Peterborough. And based off just a little bit of research, there are a ton of places that you would not expect across the country that are in floodplains. So just another random thing to be weary of. So now I will take that perfect segue and we're going to move on to the next subheading, which is the building, the actual building, the actual structure. And we're going to be talking to the first point is structural issues. So again, personal story, I almost bought a home. It was too good of a deal not to look at. So I ended up making a massive drive to go look at it with another agent, an auto agent, shout out Peter from Boardwalk. And it was so worth it to go look at it. I know foundations a little bit, not enough. Not I didn't know how much this one would cost to fix. So we actually paid for a professional to come in and, and take a look at it. Turned out it was going to be about $50,000 to fix this foundation. I mean, the floors were so wonky. It was probably 12 inches difference. You could drop a marble on one side and it would roll as fast as it could and smash into the other side of the wall. So long story short, we didn't buy the house because the $50,000 foundation and all the other problems that that would have caused kind of screwed the deal and we couldn't get it done. The numbers didn't work. So there's a lot of things to look for in a foundation, cracks under the windows, cracks in the corner, block foundation, stone foundation, century home. Obviously, this does not apply if you're buying a condo or a brand new town home or anything like that, but definitely something to consider. So those are pretty major expenses, but that takes us to our next point which is cosmetic issues. Dan, you're a big cosmetics guy, right? Tell us about them. <laughs> I, um, it's interesting Like when you talk about the cost of changing structural issues, right? Because the challenge with that is people don't see them, right? So it's harder for a purchaser to necessarily appreciate if you got to spend 50K on a foundation. Like, yeah, you'll probably notice it in the floors if you saw what the floors were before. But I think the point is, if it's done right, you don't really notice it because the house is proper when it's done. 
On the other hand, cosmetic issues are one of the areas in which I think there's potential to add value to a building, right? Because they are the ones where it is really visible, right? They're easier to spot. And this is your flooring, maybe drywall repair, paint even. Some of those those simpler cosmetic upgrades, cabinetry, bathroom, fixtures, etc. I mean, that's when you sort of get a little bit more into the skilled stuff with plumbing, etc. But light fixtures... And so to me, again, this is how you can really, you know, you get people who are flipping properties who really know how to make high impact, low cost changes. And I think you're more likely to see those high impact, low cost changes on the cosmetic side than you are on the structural side. Not to say that the structural issues aren't necessarily an opportunity to add value. You know, when you do get into, there's something sort of in between that, that I would call, and and I think this is the next point that we're going to get to, sort of your major maintenance items, right? So things that a buyer will likely appreciate, but they aren't really the sort of sex appeal, cosmetic things that I just discussed. Yeah, totally. It is mind blowing to me how many times I've seen a property that would have sold sooner or sold for more or rented for more even that all they had to do was put a coat of paint on. It is actually my, so paint, people just put a coat of eggshell white or gray or whatever the new cool color is, but just get the paint up on the walls. Now, what Dan had mentioned, the major maintenance item is, is kind of more what, what I like to call the cap X of a property. So for instance, you know, we've got a few notes in here, furnace, AC, roof, windows. Those aren't, you know, a couple hundred dollars, not even a couple thousand dollars usually. Those are going to be big expenses, right? I mean, the average cost for a new roof in Canada across the country, this is the national average, is $14,850. That stat was from last year. That's the most recent one I could find. So I guarantee it's gone up by at least a couple hundred, if not a couple thousand bucks at this point. That's not something, I don't know about you guys, but that's not something that I've got laying around to just throw out a new roof. New windows, new furniture, major appliances can all be pricey. So the lesson here is to know the property before you're going in. If you're going to go in and look at a property and ignore the $20,000 roof and the $8,000 furnace that you've got to do, you know, that $30,000 plus there could kill the deal. So be very aware of the CapEx, be very aware of the age of all of these major things and work that into the numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you try and summarize those three things, right? It's does the home have appeal? Does the structure have appeal, right? Is the design good? Is the architecture good? Or maybe the more important question is, could it be, right? Could it be appealing? And and so appeal is sort of the, that fifth point under the heading of building. Potentially, and this is typically what I would aim for, is find places that maybe aren't appealing as it stands, but could very easily be converted to appealing product. And then you just have to think about who you're selling this product to. Are you selling it to a tenant on a monthly basis? And how do we tailor this to be an appealing product to a tenant? Is the unit layout good? Is it functional? Is it accessible? Is it bright? Is it clean, etc.? But maybe if you're an investor who's focusing more on flipping or resale or whatever it is, and again, to each their own, it's not my cup of tea, but are you making it appealing? Are you presenting it to the, the type of purchaser you want to buy that home? And I guess I'll use that sort of to segue to the final component under the building is, is there opportunity to, to add value, Nick? Yeah. I mean, I think that should be one of the number one things that investors are looking at, right? And that can literally be anything from doing the duplex conversion. That can be adding another bathroom, adding another bedroom. That can be building a garage. Again, that goes back to some of the other points, right? What's the zoning like? Does the add value happen now or does the add value happen in a couple of years? So, 
that's a very broad one, but that's very open for interpretation because there is a ton of ways to add value throughout the ownership life of a property. That takes us to the next subheading here, which is income. Why don't you get us started with that one, Dan? Yeah. So typically I would look at this probably among the top things when I'm getting into a single deal. Like if I'm just looking at a property on realtor.ca, I'll just run the numbers quickly on what it'll command on the rent side. And so there's a couple of different metrics that you can use to look at this. But the important ones to really think about, because I think about real estate as an input and output business, is what are the income and what is the expenses? So the primary income line is what's your effective gross income, right? So that's potential gross rental plus all the other income from the property. You know, Maybe there's a laundry room, et cetera, or some storage or whatever it is. What is that? What is the total income, right? And then the next element, and Nick, you can discuss this one a little bit, but like then you would deduct sort of your expenses to try and get your net income scenario. Yeah. And you know, expenses can get tricky because everyone just thinks, oh, my debt servicing, aka my mortgage, this is what it's going to cost. This is what I can rent it out for. Boom. You know, I'm making a ton of money here. Well, let me tell you, there's a whole bunch of stuff that a lot of people forget about. And that, you know, we live in Canada, right? This is called the Canadian real estate investor. So guess what? It snows a lot in some places. So snow removal, you know, that's going to be a couple hundred dollars a year. Landscaping. Unless you're going out and, and cutting your own grass or the tenants are cutting their own grass, you've got some landscaping, you've got property maintenance, home insurance, taxes, the list goes on. So I would urge you to do a very thorough analysis of what those numbers look like. And then I always like to pad the stats a little bit and add a little bit more. So keep in mind, expenses can grow and can decrease. And there's also interesting ways to decrease them. What I love to do I love to find tenants, and I know this would be friend upon by some, but I love to find tenants that are a little more hands-on. So I've got a couple of deals with some tenants that I buy a lawnmower or a snowblower, and, and they're the ones that do it. Or they show up and, and they have their own equipment and they're very capable of doing it. Some other people I know like to keep things very professional and have property managers come in and do all that kind of stuff. I would urge you to decide to do whatever you're comfortable with and take it from there. I think that, you know, on the property management thing really becomes a scale question and also a personal preference question, right? I think that totally, you know, the, totally. the economics of, of hiring a manager or maintenance company to, to do those things, it makes sense the more that you've accumulated, right? But yeah, at the beginning, you kind of got to bootstrap it a little bit. Like I've even mowed lawns of my own rental properties before. So. Oh, wow. Look at you go. Yeah. 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 I've had to do it. And uh, <laughs> actually, like, well, one of those rental deals that we did recently, that landlord actually plans to mow her own lawn for the tenant if they decide not to. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this kind of brings <laughs> me to the next component here, which is the net income. But just as an interesting anecdote, I actually saw a purpose-built rental portfolio that I was looking to fundraise and purchase a long time ago in Moncton. This would have been like four or five years ago. And snow removal was actually their biggest line item on their expenses. And I talked to the owners about like, hey, do you have any regrets? Like, you know, you're you're selling these. Do you have any regrets? Like, would you have built it differently? And he's like, I actually would have spent the money building underground parking because it was all surface parking. And there's big buildings. Yeah, big buildings, like 40, 50 units, right? He's like, I actually would have spent the money now knowing what I know of how much it's going to cost to do snow removal for surface parking of a 50-unit building. I would have spent the money and done an underground parking lot. So that's how big of a magnitude some of these expenses can add up to, especially when you start getting into that scale of ownership. And what this really impacts is your net income, right? And that net is really what matters, right? It doesn't matter how much gross income you have. Nobody really cares about that. The lenders certainly don't care about it when they're underwriting you. People want to know how much after expenses they're going to walk home with. That's your real return. And to me, 
that's really the big one is and if you really want to get a rough idea because if you're looking at buying something or if you're just trying to give it 30,000 feet look at a property and guesstimate whether or not it's worth buying based on a net cap rate what you can do is apply a expense margin so sometimes you'll see expense margins of like 10% as high as i use 30% so basically i won't buy a deal or i won't even look at a deal i won't even decide to go show up at a property if it doesn't make sense with expenses being 30% of my effective gross income this guy does not get out of bed for anything less than 30%. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, but but the reality is because then I'm not vulnerable to major cost overruns like the ones that I just described, which actually literally crippled a major portfolio, right? Yeah, And totally. these are expert operators that, that went through that experience, right? So if I'm running this on the assumption, oh, this deal makes sense at a 10% expense margin, then there's no stress testing built in, right? So again, I've talked about the debt scenarios that I underwrite. At, you've talked about guys who you, who underwrite on 13% or whatever, 15% debt, right? You've got to do the same thing on, on most other. If you're underwriting on very, very conservative assumptions, then you're going to be taking less risk. And you know, to use that word risk, let's use that to pivot to the next topic of conversation here, Nick, which is the vacancy risk. Yeah. Great anecdote, by the way. And vacancy, you know, it might not seem like an issue in today's Canada with, with the headlines. I know people are lining up out the door and there's bidding wars for rentals. This hasn't always been the case and it won't always be the case. So enjoy it while it lasts. But usually, especially with residential, I, I like to include half a month to a month of vacancy in, in my numbers. And Everyone's got their own way of running numbers. Obviously, you know, if you go back and listen to our everything but residential real estate episode a few episodes ago, we do talk about the challenges of vacancy that can be found across the other asset types, right? So for instance, I'm probably going to have an easier time finding a nice couple to live in the upper floor of my duplex than I'm going to find a doctor's office willing and ready to take on a multiple year lease in my small commercial or retail location. So Vacancy isn't as much of a risk now in some markets, but it's always a good thing to line up within your numbers. And again, that risk changes in the different asset classes. And that's actually another great segue. Man, we're on our segues today. And I don't mean we're riding around with, you know, on the two wheeled segues, but we're really handing this off because that's a great segue into how to offset that risk. Why don't you tell us about that, Dan? You're talking about segues and risks too. Didn't the, that guy? Die, the inventor of that die on a, on a Segway. I think he wrote it off a cliff or something. Actually crazy stuff. Oh. But um, anyway, <laughs> in regards to the risk offset, and this is a good one, and I'm going to use it to actually tie into that vacancy risk conversation as well on the underwriting side. I kind of naturally actually accidentally underwrite properties in my head. Like when I'm running the numbers on a property, like as an example, I'm looking at a fourplex right now. 400 grand-ish and it's got, I don't know, four suites at I think 1500 bucks a month, let's say. So I'm doing the math, okay, that's $6,000 a month. And I kind of just say $6,000 a month over a year is 60 grand, even though it's not, right? It's more than that. But because I just, for the simplicity of math in my head, I'm just saying, okay, 60,000 because I'm kind of just multiplying it by 10 because the math is easier. I actually end up underwriting as if I'm getting, I'm losing two months out of the year of rent, right? So I'm underwriting at like a, whatever that is, I don't know, like 6% vacancy rate or something like that. So again, not maybe necessarily something that you need to encode in your underwriting process as a habit, but just something worth thinking about that I've sort of adapted as an accident over time. Yeah. But I mean, I, I love that. Yeah. I think the napkin math is is where it's at, right? I mean, if, if yeah. it doesn't make sense on a napkin, it's not going to make sense in Excel. So No, for sure. And I see a lot of people like that, you know, you fall in love with a deal and an opportunity, especially in a market where you have excess demand, right? So there's, it's scarce to even get a product and you're trying to rationalize. You get, I think as soon as you get the Excel model out, unless you're like institutional grade investor, 
as soon as you get the Excel model out, you might be trying to rationalize things at a certain point, right? Like, again, if it doesn't make sense on a napkin, it's probably not going to make sense on a spreadsheet. Yeah. So to offset that risk, I mean, the biggest way to offset risk here is to have more than one unit, right? So I don't advise anybody to purchase single family residential properties as investments. I don't think that they are investments. I think that they're speculative assets. I think that maybe there's a bit of an investment thesis evolving in them for sort of that short-term rental or medium-term rental for, I don't know, like Airbnb investing as an example. But again, that's to me is more of a business rather than an investment thesis, a pure investment thesis. So the easiest way to offset risk is, you know, if you're in a market that has a degree of vacancy, for every unit you add to your building, you've increased your tolerance to that vacancy risk in the market. So if you have a fourplex, if all of a sudden the market vacancy goes up to 25%, then statistically, you've still got three out of four of your buildings vacant. Whereas maybe one of your single family residential competitors up the street would have three months of the year missing from their income. And again, like these are obviously just statistical oversimplifications, but it's just worth thinking about that. That's one of, you know, beyond the increase in income that you get from a multiplex, it's the increase in risk protection, downside risk protection. And the next piece is, again, talking about that downside risk. I think we are getting pretty damn good with these segues here, Nick, but is talking about the individual, who <laughs> you are, the purchaser, but not and not only just you, but the person you're buying it from, the agents involved in the process, the team, et cetera. But the big one is, are you the right investor for this deal? And you have to understand your own risk tolerance. So you want to talk a little bit about that one, Nick? Yeah. I mean, I think the last heading here again is the individual, right? So you, the investor. And I think this one's going to probably be the quickest one out of them all because really, this relays back to each other subheading, right? So again, are you the right investor to create value? Know yourself, right? Are you someone that is great at raising money, but have never swung a hammer? Maybe you shouldn't be in there trying to install the kitchen or, or doing the demo or saving money. The next one, does the deal serve you? Does it serve your investment strategy? If you need the money out to do another project in, in six months, a buy and hold is probably not a good idea unless you're going to execute the perfect burr. So I know I took two points there. Sorry, Dan, I'm getting ahead of myself here. But it's really about knowing you, knowing the deal, and knowing how you can add value to that. So why don't you take the next two, Dan? Yeah, for sure. I completely agree with what you're saying there. And I think that the easiest way to understand whether or not you can add value to an asset or to a real estate transaction is who is the person on the other end of the transaction, right? And are you the right person to serve that customer? You have to think about, again, renting a property out is a customer service business. Are they the right target market for you as a landlord? Do you know and understand the demographics, what the rents are in the market? And are you capable of being a value creator or a housing creator in that market for that market? And then again, are you the right person to provide service for that customer? Do you even have the willingness to, especially if you're talking about buying an asset that maybe has some plumbing issues and you're aware of that, right? Or some electrical issues or whatever it is. Are you going to be frustrated if you have to pick up calls in several nights of the week to run over to fix a minor plumbing issue? Or are you going to be able to handle those problems? And does your wallet want to handle those problems as they arise, right? Are you okay with maintenance issues as a way of gradually adding value over time as your tenants identify them to you? And are you going to do that promptly, right? Again, this is a service business and you have to keep sharpening your pencil, sharpening your product, making sure that the product that you're providing to that end user is improving or at least not getting worse. Because otherwise, they're going to have, in many cases, a lower incentive to pay you rent. But also, in certain cases, and in extreme cases, they might actually have legal rights to not pay you rent, right? So are you going to be okay with weathering that storm? And maybe we'll talk a little bit, Nick, if you want to finish us up here with the one about whether or not those same principles apply to the sale of that property. 
For sure. And then just a closer on your point as well, I think it's really about having the proper systems and teams in place. You know, if you're trying to juggle all this stuff and you've got a full-time job and a family and a whole bunch of other stuff going on, you desperately need systems. You desperately need people that you can rely on to help you service your customers, which is exactly what your tenants are. And on that, I think the last closing point of the 25-point checklist is if and when you do sell, what is your customer and target market like? So if let's say, you know, let's lose a, a, use a duplex here as an example. Did you make that basement suite legal? Have you put two or more meters in? Are you doing things that other investors are looking for? If it's a single family home and if it's a flip, are you building to that luxury market? Are you doing that turnkey? My takeaway from this one is you as the individual always need to have multiple exit strategies. And on that note, the show's over. Goodbye. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm going to do a quick wrap up just for anybody who was hoping for a chance to take notes throughout the episode. We'll go from top to bottom so you don't have to go through. And we'll also post this whole list in the show notes because Nick's done a really good job at actually typing out all these points. But from top to bottom, before we wrap up here, here's the list of the 25-point deal inspection that we use that both Nick and I have used to analyze whether or not a transaction is even a remotely good idea to get involved in. So from the top, location, employment, demographics, future growth potential, and the local microeconomy, and how does it compare against the rest of the housing stock? The lot, size dimensions, conservation, zoning and planning, frontage, roads, traffic, topography, and natural heritage of the lot. The building itself, any structural issues, any cosmetic issues where you can use to create value. Are there major maintenance item issues, furnace, AC, roof, windows, etc.? These are some of the big expensive ones that buyers and tenants are going to be looking at. Is the property appealing visually or could it be appealing? Can you use that ability to create appeal? Can you add value to the property? The income and returns of the property, the effective gross income is the first one you look at. Then you want to look at the expenses. What's it costing you to operate this property? And that'll bring you to your net income. The vacancy risk, what's the vacancy rate of the market? And is there vacancy risk associated with the product? The easiest way to obviously defer this risk or mitigate this risk is through owning multifamily investments so that you can spread that vacancy risk over a number of different units and you get economies of scale. And finally, the individual. How do you fit into the deal? Are you the right investor to create value for the product? Does the deal serve you? Do you serve the customer or target market for a rental? Do you understand the demographics and are you able to cater to that market? And are you the right service provider for that market? And finally, on the exit, who do you plan to sell this property to? Who is the customer, the target market on the sale? And if and when you decide to sell, are you the right person? And are you putting out the right product for them? So that is your 25-point real estate deal inspection. Love it. Thanks, Dan. Talk to you soon, everybody. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GNH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.